Good morning. How's everybody doing? All right. I've been getting a lot of people ask me questions. I'm going to come back at Pastor Chuck again. And I want, so I'll give you some context um, for those of you who maybe haven't heard. Um, last two or three times I've been up here, Pastor Chuck teased me the first time because I didn't wear a collar. So then I stuck my, you know, planted my feet and decided I wasn't going to wear a collar the next time and teased him about it. So we've had this kind of a running joke going back and forth. So I want, I want him to know that I've given up and I'm going to wear a collar. Um, so I'm going to submit because he's my pastor. And so I'm going to... So Pastor Chuck, this one's for you. So, yeah, no. So no offense to anybody that comes from more of a formal background like that. We're just having a little fun. So, yeah. So I was thinking this morning. Um, so it's my privilege. Um, this will give you fair warning to stay away for a few weeks longer or something. But I'll be. Uh, bringing a series on Ephesians chapters one and two for the next six weeks, and I'm really excited about uh, bringing the word to you. And I was kind of thinking it feels a little bit like being on the roller coaster in the beginning when you're doing that click, 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 headed up the hill, and uh, we'll see where it goes when we start heading down. So um, keep me in your prayers. I'm really excited about um, bringing the word to you in a kind of an extended series. So uh, what I want to do this morning is, uh, well, so let me just kind of talk through what we're going to be doing in the next six weeks. So basically we're going to have a short three-week series on a life of worship. And then we'll have a kind of a standalone message on the last part of chapter one. And then we're going to do a little two-week series on, on Ephesians chapter two. And Ephesians chapter 2 is a really powerful chapter. Well, the whole book is very powerful. Um, but what I want to do real quick is just kind of read the first two verses with us and so that uh, we can get kind of set up for the rest of the book and we'll kind of go from there. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, through the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and to the faithful ones in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So this book, just want to give you a few little tidbits. Normally, if I was going to do a whole book, I might spend a little bit more time giving you some introductory material, but I just want to kind of give you a couple of facts, and then as we go through the book, I might give you some more background so that as it informs each text. But this is what we would call one of Paul's prison epistles. Um, if you want to read about... Uh, his experience with, with the church at Ephesus and, and the people in Ephesus, uh, you can read that in Ephesians chapter 19, and then there's a little farewell address that he gives to them in, verse, in chapter 20. So I'd encourage you to read that. I'd also like to give you a challenge. Um, it would be kind of cool if as a church, we could be reading the book of Ephesians together while we preach through it. So Ephesians is a great book because it's six chapters. So if, if, you, you, know, if you have um, the patience, which most of us hopefully do, to read one chapter per day, you get one day off. So just laid out there as a challenge. There's, you know, nobody's going to be testing you or quizzing, but um, 
let me encourage you to be reading through the book of Ephesians once a week as we go through the next six weeks. Now, one of the problems that the people in Ephesus were facing is that they were in a situation culturally where there was a clash. There was a cultural clash between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Now, we're not going to see that in our first little series, but in in chapter 2, we're going to see that heavily. So remember that when we get to chapter 2. And once again, you can read the background here of the book um, in terms of Paul's interaction with the believers in Ephesus in chapter 19 of of, uh, the book of Acts. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to put up the screen, if you don't mind, a chart. So what we want to do is we want to read through, once again, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Many of you have heard this is one long sentence in the Greek language. Um, And I want to kind of give you a preview, because that's a long chunk, and I want to give you some handles to kind of hang it on so that you can understand it better as we read it. So there's some structure to this passage. So verses 1, 3 through 6 speak primarily of the Father. Verses 1, 7 through 12 speak primarily of the Son, and 13 and 14 speak primarily of the Spirit. You're also going to notice peppered throughout here a call to praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how it's going to start. And then again in verse 6, it's going to be to the praise of his glorious grace. And then again in verse 12, he's going to say, so that we, the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glorious grace. And then again in verse 14, he's going to say, to the praise of his glory. So structurally, you can see how the praise sections actually mark off the Father section, the Son section, and the Holy Spirit section. And then what we're going to find is in each of those sections, what we're going to find is that each person of the Trinity, each person of our triune God, plays a role in our salvation. And they're very distinct roles, and they're very important roles. And what the basic argument of this section is, is that because we have a triune God that was intimately involved in our salvation... It's our job to become worshipers. Because our triune God was intimately involved in our salvation, we must become worshipers. So notice with me in verse 3, the call to praise. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here we have a very typical Jewish call to praise. It hails back to the Jewish calls to praise like Baruch Hashem Madonai, blessed be the name of the Lord. So this is a very typical call to praise and it would be easy for us to think that this is merely a call to come worship on a Sunday morning like we did today. And that's important. Would you agree that worship on Sunday mornings is very important? So just uh, one of the great joys I have when I get to preach, I, I have to step out of the small church that I've been sitting in for the summer, which is a bummer because Dave Walter's speaking and doing a great job. But I get to come in here and I get to listen to our worship team lead us, practice and rehearse to get ready to lead us. And it's a real fun time because I get kind of a double portion of a little bit of worship. So it's a really good morning when I get to do this. 
But so we have this kind of a Sunday morning worship. And if you don't regularly come to Sunday morning worship, you are missing out. You will never reach the heights that God wants you to reach in your spiritual life if you don't actively engage in worship. We're called to worship corporately. We're called to worship as a body. And we want you to participate. We want you to participate. God calls us to participate. But I also don't want us to think that this is merely talking about coming on a Sunday morning. As if worship is merely, and I'm not saying that in a negative sense, but as if worship is merely coming here on a Sunday morning and praying together, singing together, listening to the word together. Because that's an important core of what we do in worship. But if you don't mind bringing that chart back up for me again. Thank you. So I want you to notice um, there are three calls to praise. Sorry, I had a separate slide for this. I'm sorry, and you knew that, and I blew it for you. You mind pushing it forward to that other chart? There are three other calls to praise. Well, we can just look at it from here. That's fine. So... The first call to praise is blessed be the God, the Father. Then at the end of the section, he says, to the praise of his glorious grace. The second one, uh, the second uh, reiteration there, so that we, the first to hope in the Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. Notice it doesn't say so that you might sing in worship. What does it say? So that you might be to the praise of his glory. So worship is more than just singing. Worship is more than just coming together, assembling, and praising God together. It is that, but it's much more. Each of these sections calls us to be something so that we can live a life of praise, so that we can live a life of worship. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable. So when, when Paul here calls us to praise and worship, he's calling us to be the kind of people whose life is characterized by worship, whose life's, lives are lined up with God's priorities, whose lives line up with God, what God says we should be like on a daily basis. So God calls us to more than just this Sunday thing. God calls us to more than just this Sunday thing. Notice verse four. Uh, No, sorry, we need to finish verse three. Um, He said, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who blessed us in all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we have this really strange reality that he says, I want to call you to worship, and I do that because of the blessings that I gave you. The blessings that I give you demand that you become worshipers. But it's really strange the kind of the wording that he uses, because for some of us, this is a little bit spooky, maybe, and a little bit mysterious. Notice what he says at the end of verse three. He says, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. 
there are other scriptures that say the same thing, that somehow, even though we live here in these bodies on this earth, that somehow, if we are believers in Christ, we are in Jesus, we are with Jesus in the heavenly places where he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And that's the whole basis for us receiving blessing. Let me take you to another passage. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to. I'm just going to read it. Romans chapter 6 says this. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. For we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. So you see that there's this really strange spiritual way that we are unified. We become a unit with Christ and he blesses us that way. In this passage, he says, when Jesus died, it's as if we were with him when he was nailed to the cross. When Jesus was buried, it's as though we were buried with Jesus. And when he was resurrected, we were resurrected to new life with Jesus. Can I get an amen? Isn't that great? That's amazing. So we have this unity in Christ. And because of this, because of how he has changed our lives, we want to worship him. It's not that we worship him so that we can get things. It's we want to worship him because he saved us. And we're going to see that even more in just a second. Where are you today? Maybe you're here and you've been, I've been worshiping to try to earn my way to God. Maybe I've been trying to do all the right things my whole life, be at the right places, avoid the wrong things, and I'm hoping that that's, when it get, that's, when it gets, that's going to be what gets me to God. That's not it. True worshipers are ones who have been saved, who've thrown themselves at Jesus' mercy, and who have received this unity in Christ, this blessing of salvation, and because of that, we worship. Cart before the horse. Or in this case, we want the horse before the cart. And as if, and as if it isn't, how do I see this? As if that isn't enough, he, he goes on to show us even more that salvation is of God. Look what he says in the rest of the chapter, or the section. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who blessed us, with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he also chose us in him before the foundations of the world so that we might be holy and blameless before him. So one of the spiritual blessings that he did was he actually reached down and he saved us. Now, what I'm about to talk about may be the single most controversial thing in the history of the church. But if the Bible teaches it, we're going to teach it. If the Bible teaches it, we're going to embrace it. But this is what he says. If you are a Christian today, it's because God reached down and saved you. You didn't choose him. He chose you. That's what the text says. Just as he 
He, not he, he chose us. And you say, well, well, that's based on my choice of him. But what does he say right after he chose us? Before the foundations of the world. So before I was born, before the world was even made, God chose me. He set upon me a love relationship. He foreknew me. He had a love relationship me that preexisted, and he then saves us. That's why we worship. That's why we worship. Now, some of you are saying, but that makes me a robot. I am not responsible anymore. That's, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the Bible teaches. There's a bunch of other passages that deal with God's unconditional and sovereign election. Um, and there's some other passages that talk about free will. So I'll just give you two sovereignty passages to affirm. Now, how many times does the Bible need to say something for us to believe it? Once? Fair? But let me just stack on two just to make sure. It says this, no one can come to me, this is Jesus speaking, John 6, 44, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Acts 13, 48 says this, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Okay. One was good, three is even better. But you will say, okay, but I don't want to be a robot. I'm not a robot, I am, right? Does that mean people are not responsible for their life? Yeah, the Bible teaches the other half too. Joshua 24, 15, Joshua says to the children of Israel, but if, you, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So there is personal responsibility to choose. Mark eight thirty four. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny them, uh, whoever, excuse me, wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Personal responsibility, personal choice. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teachings come from God or whether I speak on my own, John 7, 17. So the Bible seems to teach both that God chose us and that we chose him, but he chose us first. And that's the only reason why we can choose him. So here, here's the thing. It seems to be intention. They seem to be contradictory, but so, so does the Trinity. Anybody want to explain the Trinity to me? I get it. God is three, God is one. Not in the same way, but I don't know what that means. So here's what you do. And I literally know, I know one of the world's experts on the Trinity. Actually, I know his parents. Sorry, I went to school with his parents. And he literally is one of the like, top five scholars on the Trinity. And I read some of his stuff, and I'm not, God bless him for doing the work. But I read it, and I'm like, you just made up another word for something that none of us understand. Right? Because our finite minds can't grasp the infinite. Amen? We're finite, so we don't understand. And by the way, those of you, we're, we're in kind of a sciencey town, wouldn't you say? Is light a wave or a particle? Yeah. Yeah, yeah both. Yes. I'm not sure what. So don't, just 
right? The world says, oh, you Christians are logical. Oh, okay. Light, particle, wave, not sure. We won't even get to dark matter, right? It's so interesting. I've never been at a church that I could say that and people understand what I'm talking about. So it's a different, different kind of congregation. It's a little intimidating at times for non-science, to be honest with you, but that's okay. So he, but here's the reality, right? Here's the picture, okay? Imagine, and this is not a, a fun picture, but it is. Imagine just a Venn diagram of everyone in the world. Everyone dead in their trespasses and sins. Everyone bound to hell. Not a single person who has any opportunity or chance to make it to heaven. And out of that group, God reaches down and sovereignly chooses out some, graciously saves them, and says, become my worshiper. Become my worshiper. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you will never come to Christ unless he draws you. But some of you may have been feeling that draw lately. Some of you may even be feeling that draw from the Holy Spirit right now. And if you are, I want to invite you to talk to me right after the service. I want to speak with you. Because if God is drawing you, then you need to come and join us and become a worshiper with us. Amen? I'm saying that too much today, sorry. All right, so this interesting reason why, because he chose us sovereignly and because we cannot do anything but be grateful for the free and gracious and sovereign salvation that God made for us. Look what he says in verse uh, five. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus to himself according to the kind intention of his will. So I'm gonna go ahead and ask you to put that screen up, uh, the picture of the, the old Greek text, if you don't mind. So this is not a first century document. This is about a third or fourth century document. I can't remember. Um, the reason I'm putting this up here, you're probably puzzling why. It's, um, so if you, if you look at the end of verse four and at the beginning of verse five, there's a, a little bit of a translation challenge here. How many of your Bibles say, we will walk before, uh, holy and blameless before him in love? Anybody have that? How many have, in love he predestined us? Right? It's because that phrase, we're not sure which side it goes with. Right? So the reason why we don't know which side it goes with, because the original Greek manuscripts, do you see any spaces there between words? Okay, so I'm, I used to teach Greek, and I'm pretty good at Greek. It took me about an hour to find like 20 words in there, because the script is a little different, because it's a fourth century script. And, but once I started to be able to see it, then I got it pretty quick. But just getting used to that. Now, imagine in the middle of that, you have a phrase that could go with either direction. So in love could go with what goes before, or in love could go with what comes after. Well, here's the best part. Both ways you read it are true from the other passages in the Bible. Were we to walk holy and blameless before him in love? Is love what motivates our worship and our life of holiness for God? Yeah, right? Okay, so we walk holy and blameless before him in love. 
However, did he lovingly choose us out of all those who are on the way to hell? Did he predestine us because of his love for us that he established before the foundations of the world? Yes. So in a sense, it could be either. It could be both. Meh, doesn't matter. So you choose. Okay. I actually, I actually think it goes with the second, but that's my personal opinion, so I don't think it changes the world. But, but you get the idea. But here's what he says, though. He chose us, and he marked us out for a future. He predestined us. He set a boundary for us, and he set this ahead of time, and he knows where we're going. So the first one is dealing with the choice, and the second one is dealing with God's plan to predestine something is to plan it out. So he chose you and he planned your life. Now, isn't that the most amazing thought? Not a single part of your life is outside of God's will and God's knowledge. No matter how bad a situation you're going through, maybe you lost your job, maybe you lost your family, maybe you lost whatever. Maybe you're going through a great time. Whatever it is, God knows it. So we have a sympathetic high priest because God knows everything we're going through and nothing that happens is going to surprise God because he marked out our future. So whatever you're going through right now, it's from God or at least he allowed it. So what are we gonna learn from your current state? What does God have to teach you? Let's be honest, how many of us can say that we've learned when we've learned some really good lessons when life is good. When's the last time you could really say, "Oh, I really learned something really cool because life was good." Most of us, when do we learn the best? Through hardship, through struggle. God's with us in those moments. He's marked out our lives. He knows the beginning from the end. God's in control, and that's why we live lives. Of worship. And then he reiterates that again. Or by the way, just one thing you also, as you read through the book, notice how many times in this section it comes up that God is sovereign. It's his choice. It's almost overwhelming how many times, especially even in the next section. But at the end of this section, he says this, right? The one who predestined you to adoption as sons according to the kind intention of his will, not your will, his will. Now, there's one more thing I want to talk about before we kind of get to some hardcore application. Um, it says that we were predestined to what? Don't, it's okay to look at your text. What is it predestined to? Adoption as sons. Adoption as sons. So adoption, by the way, can I take a side for just a second? Do you think right now adoption is a really cool topic to be thinking about? in our current moment, in our culture, right? I, I don't want to steal anybody's thunder for down the road. We've got some cool things coming for how we can help meet some needs in our culture that might be arising from the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And so be ready for those announcements because we want to move into our community and into this world and help those whose babies we're going to be spared now. So we have a really good problem coming up. Back to the text, adoption of sons. This text is not talking about literal human adoption. 
So we, we know the concept of adoption, but ancient Near East adoption, excuse me, ancient Mediterranean adoption is a little bit different. So the purpose of Greco-Roman adoption was not just to make you a part of the family, it was to make you an heir. A classic example of this, Julius Caesar had natural children. Anybody remember who Julius Caesar adopted as his heir? A guy named Octavian who became Caesar Augustus. Yeah, he became Caesar Augustus. He saw something about his own children that he wasn't really a big fan of, and he saw some potential, and so he chose him as his heir. So when we talk about adoption, we think of bringing someone as an equal, and that's it's true of a Christian adoption, but he's adopting us to make us heirs with his son. You get it? That's way, way heavier than just merely being adopted into the family, which in and of itself is an amazing thing. So there's this adoption into a higher status than just being a mem- family member. We're fellow heirs with Christ. Just think about that for five minutes this week and it'll just blow your head open. All right, so let's, let's kind of bring this home though because why, why is it important? Um, so, much, so much damage has been done bet- with, in the church with arguments over did God choose, do you have free will? Answer is yes to both. But there's so much damage that's been done with all the kind of fussy fighting, but there's a good reason for why God reveals what he reveals. He's infinitely wise and he reveals it to us for a purpose. So I I would really invite you to think about your identity this morning. And I know that maybe is kind of a strange thing to think about in terms of application, but stick with me. And I think it'll go somewhere that really is powerful. When God adopted you as a son or as a daughter, he gave you an identity. He gave you an identity. How does our culture, how does our culture try to find its identity? Well, let's talk to traditional. The traditional way to try to find your identity is through accomplishments, academic, athletic, artistic, or career. Anybody feel, I kind of feel that? When I was younger, I did that. Your role in society. I'm a husband, I'm a wife, I'm a handsman, I'm um, I'm a soldier, I'm a volunteer fireman, I'm a mayor, I'm a judge, whatever it happens to be. Is that where you find your identity? Think about every single one of those things that I just mentioned, and the traditional way to find your identity is deeply unstable. So I I try not to talk about my job too much from up here, but I'm a volleyball coach, and so um, I deal with pretty good athletes, Division II, so nothing to shake a stick at in terms of, that's, that's a pretty high level of accomplishment. Every single one of those high school students that come into my program, we're, we're all-stars. They, they, they never stepped off the court. They were the, oh, you're the greatest thing. And then they come to college, and every single one of them thinks they're going to start. Well, I have about 17 to 20, depending on the year, players on my roster. And guess how many people play volleyball on the court at one time? 
sick. So that leaves at least 11 who have to deal with the reality. And guess what? If their identity is in them being a volleyball player, they really go through trauma, psychological trauma. If you think your identity is in your brain, wait till you have that traumatic brain injury. If your identity is in your family, wait till your family lets you down. Where you find your identity is really, really important. And if you try to find your identity in these traditional ways, you're, you're asking for trouble because it's completely unstable. And you may find yourself, sometimes not even from your own fault, suffering because your whole identity is not in Jesus, but it's in something else. Now, that's the traditional way. Some of you, I think some of you, I'm gonna help you understand where our culture's at right now because our culture has a completely different way, completely different way of finding your identity now. And so some scholars have called it expressive individualism. So let me just, and, I, and I'm not dealing with it in deep, I'm kind of giving you a real thumbnail of this, but it, it's this, the highest good is to look deep inside yourself Peel back all the social constraints and find your true self. And this, in our culture, is usually wrapped up in some sort of a sexual issue, identity, or proclivity. If you try to find your identity in peeling an onion, you're going to find nothing down there. Because you're just going to keep peeling and peeling, and it's gonna, you're going to find it very corrupt, very bankrupt, and very unstable. Very, very unstable. Now that's expressive individualism, but if you think about the last couple of years in our culture, some scholars are starting to call this performative individualism. Performative individualism. Well, first, let me go back and kind of wrap up expressive individualism. The highest sin in expressive individualism is failure to affirm and celebrate anyone's self-declared identity. Now you know why the church is being so looked at and being treated so badly right now, right? Because we dare think that someone's self-declared identity might not be what God wants. And that's the highest sin within expressive individualism is to say, no, no, no. And here, here's, here's what's different from before. It used to be live and let live was kind of the culture that we lived in. Now it's live and you better affirm me or else. Okay, and, but that's turned now into what's called performative individualism. And in performative individualism, the highest sin is still the same. Cancel culture, you've heard it, right? Those kinds of things will happen if you dare not affirm and celebrate what every, anybody else's self-declared identity is. Ironically, this is... The, the highest good has actually changed. The highest good isn't just peeling away and finding what you really are inside. It's actually peeling down and finding what everybody else in the culture wants you to be. The approved list of five to 10 things that it's cool to be in an identity. Now here, here's the irony. Do you get the irony here? Self, expressive individual and said, you find what you are and you live it out. Performative individualism, and this is where our children are at right now and being bombarded with this, is that it's basically saying that 
you need to peel down and find the approved list of identities that make you cool. And now you can go out and perform those identities and be that identity. And that's going to make you cool in the social media world. So the irony is that it's actually the claim that you're finding yourself is actually the claim that you're going to be what other people want you to be. And that too is deeply unstable. That too is deeply unstable. So please don't get me wrong here. I'm not sitting back and angrily saying these things. I'm saying these things with a deeply broken heart for our culture. Because our culture is seeking to find some sort of stability. And, it, and, and our culture has rejected God. And so because of that, it's like, the only metaphor I can think of is kind of like they're sitting back in a chair. Do you ever sit back in a chair and you lean back and you lose your balance and you're like, oh, and you almost fall? Do you remember that feeling? That's what it's like not having an identity in the world. And that's where our culture is at. That's the culture that needs Jesus. If you're here and you, you might even be feeling that pressure right now. You might be feeling this pressure to try to find some identity that fits your culture or fits your peer group. I say this with utmost urgency. Don't find your identity in anything outside of Christ. That's where we find our identity. That's where we find our identity. So if you're here today and you you might be thinking, I've never heard this before. Or maybe you feel God drawing you today. Would you talk to me right after the service? There'll be a number of people up here. I'll be one of them. Please come talk to us because we'd like to help you find your identity in Christ. Now, for us who are those who have found their identity in Christ, we need to keep finding our identity in Christ. And then what we need to do is live as worshipers out there so that we can help others find their identity in Christ. Can we do that together? Let's do that together. I can't tell you how, I'm ex- how excited I am for the book of Ephesians. We gotta, hey, click, 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 click. We just started down that hill. Let's see where God takes us. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much. You give us an identity. You saved us. You pulled us out of the muck and mire. You cleaned us off. And you call us your sons. What, what else can we do but live lives for you? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.